Church, so good to see you here today. Uh, if you're joining us online, we've got a smattering of people throughout the building have filled up in just a couple of hours, and that's encouraging, you know, to know that you all didn't just like go away to another state or just disappear on us. And I'm, I'm hoping that having an audience here will make me at least 20% better than I normally am. So I know that that'll be an encouragement to many of you. Any improvement is much appreciated. I want to say thank you to those of you who have supported us throughout this COVID. Uh, and I know that I asked you in this month as, as our fiscal year closes out to give something extra. And you guys have just been so, so generous. And I, I thank you for that. You know, our church has suffered financially through the COVID and other things. And so those of you that have sacrificed so much to make a difference, I'm just genuinely appreciative of it and grateful for those of you who love this church, you love what we're doing, and it shows. And so thank you so much. You know, uh, when we get together, it's just a reminder. I mean, we already knew it, but like getting together, like it's a reminder of how, how much we need each other. There's been a lot of conversation in the news and in the Christian community about what is essential, and us being together is truly essential. So, you know, and so one of the things that we've been determined to do in spite of how busy everybody is, is to fire up our home groups again. And so you're going to see a link come up uh, on our online platform. If you're just interested, you're not committing, it's not a life sentence, you don't have to sign on a dotted line or give us blood. But if you're interested in the groups that are going to be forming, we're going to be telling you more about that. If you don't even know what a home group is, it's just a group of 10 to maybe sometimes 20, sometimes even more people who meet weekly in a home. And uh, we're going to meet on campus here first. We don't have to meet out in the parking lot anymore. So that's great news because we want, we want people to be in circles. And it's the way that we shepherd our church. It's the way that we respond to the messages and think deeply about the things that God is teaching us and the things that we're growing together in. So we want you to join us in that. And then, uh, as um, Lisa already noticed, like next week we're doing one big service. And this is part celebration. It's part like, hey, let's, let's get together. We know how important this is. But I want to tell you, it's like it's ne next week is also going to be a major turning point for our church because over the last six or so months, I have been and our team has been speaking into this cultural moment that we're in. Lisa talked about the wilderness and we did a series called The Promised Land and we've talked about the Christian conversation that's taking places in churches and certainly in our church about the role of women. And now we've been talking about like our inability to talk even. So we've been addressing these things that we're all facing in different ways. Uh, not just locally, but uh, globally. And so next week, we're going to be wrapping up Let's Talk, and we're going to make a really intentional turn from talking about what's happening in our world today and what the Bible and the gospel has to say about it. We're going to start talking, uh, looking at the quintessential message from Jesus from uh, the, uh, the Math Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 through 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And these words that Jesus says in these three chapters that Matthew gives us, they are the basis of all of his teaching. They are the, the, the foundation for the way he lived his life and the things that he was passionate about and the places that he went. 
And they're also the basis for all the teachings of the apostles. So for 18 weeks, we're going to be looking at the words of Jesus. And so what we should learn out of all of this. In the last number of months, we've learned how, how much we need each other. And I think as we make this turn as a church, we're going to see how much we need the words of Jesus in our world today. And we're just going to sink our roots deep into these teachings that so formed what Christianity is. So that's what next week is all about. So I hope that even if you're listening online and you don't really consider yourself part of Sunridge, you live a long ways away, make your way to Temecula and join us in the parking lot next, <clears throat> next weekend at 1030. It's going to be a wonderful celebration. And because it's outside, my sermon will be shorter. So you can count on that too, right? Did I, get an, did I hear amens out there because of that? So now, uh, as we continue our series, Let's Talk, I want to I call our attention to uh, the book, a book in the Old Testament. It's a book of wisdom. It's called Proverbs, and specifically one part of one verse out of Proverbs 13, verse 10. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Pride only breeds quarrels. We pretty much could say amen, couldn't we? I mean, that's a sermon in itself. Pride is a source of every conflict that you've been through. It's the source for that relational tension that you often feel with the people that are even the closest to you, the people that you would say that you love. And pride is the biggest problem in the world today. Now, I'm faced with a dilemma. How does one talk about pride without sounding prideful himself or even being prideful? What you're going to find, you know, often you'll, you'll, you, I know that you guys are surprised by me at what I know, what I actually know. I'm actually an expert in a few things. And you're going to notice that as I talk about pride that I'm going to be so spot on. I'm going to be, you're going to be amazed at the insights that I have about pride. And you know why? It's because I'm so familiar with it. I am an expert in pride. I just want to tell you as we start and admit that and confess it, whatever it really takes. But because of that, I know a lot about pride. So what I'm going to say today, if you're prideful, it's going to tweak you. You're going, to, you're going to be uncomfortable with some of the things that I say as I have been, as I've looked in my own life. But I'm going to try to not sound very prideful as I talk about pride. As uncomfortable as it is, it's a necessary topic for us to talk about in this series we're in, Let's Talk, a teaching series about how uh, we can meet people where they are, even if where they are isn't where we are. We've, if we just look at what we've already talked about through the lens of pride, if we're prideful, we cannot listen, which is the first thing we talked about. If, if we're filled with pride, we will label people in order to delegitimize their thoughts and their positions. And if we're prideful, we'll wear a jersey that protects only our team because we have team 
pride, and we'll only be loyal to them. You see, pride is the main reason we cannot do what we most need to do today, and that's talk. As the writer of Proverbs says, it only breeds quarrels. Can I get an amen from the group here today? Amen. If you're at home and you're just chatting online, say amen, because pride only breeds quarrels. That's not, those aren't my words. Those are the writer of Proverbs' words. See, pride is a thing that will keep you from God. It will make you so smug because you have God. Pride will make you feel better than, and pride will make us feel insecure. Pride makes us blame everyone else for our problems. And pride makes us think that everyone else's problems are their problem alone. Pride says, I know everything there is to know on that topic. And pride keeps me from sharing what I know. Pride is that surge of adrenaline you feel when you're offended. And pride is the flash you feel when that person jumps in front of you at the meat counter in the grocery store. Pride is that desire to ridicule that person that contradicted you. And pride is that need to set someone straight. And pride makes it okay to berate another human being. I told you I was an expert on this. Pride caused Lucifer the fallen angel to fall, and it is also the cause of our falls. And often pride, as we're laying flat on the pavement, will tell us that it's not our fault we're laying flat on the pavement as a result of our fall. Pride tells you you're so good at something even though no one else thinks that you are, and your mom does not count. And pride will keep you from trying something out of fear of failure. Pride will make you quit when you should stick it out. And pride will make you stay longer in a situation than you should. Pride says that people don't matter. And pride will debate before it even understands. Pride protects the status quo. And pride will make hypocrites of us all. Pride causes war, destruction, death. It splits friends and families and churches. Pride only breeds quarrels. Can I get an amen? Or have I gotten prideful already in my talk about pride? You see, I don't know if this is a news flash to you or not, Sunridge, but pride is not a Christian virtue. It may be in vogue today, but it is not a Christian virtue. And I have to say, and I include myself in this, that I think that as Christians, it's possible that we have lost our way in this way. It might be the sin of our time. You know, Asaph, in one of his psalms, said of the arrogant in Psalm 73, 6, he talked about the arrogant who wear their pride as a necklace. That is, they adorn themselves with pride. Isn't, isn't my pride beautiful that I'm wearing today? 
It's so lovely. But the truth is, pride is ugly. The, the Pharisees are our greatest example of this, where when you take religion and you, you shape it with pride, it becomes not a thing that helps the world, but a thing that is ugly and contributes to the erosion of human flourishing. That's why James wrote in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And Jesus not only said that if you want to be great in my kingdom, that you should be a servant of all, he also said in Matthew 23, 12, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, we should take no pride in our pride. See, humility is the way of Jesus. I encourage you to take the pride challenge and read through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see if you can find anywhere where Jesus promotes pride. I'm pretty sure that you won't be able to find it. But you will find him saying things like in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek or humble. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he said of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And as we talked about last week, that as we give our allegiance to Jesus, our, our entire lives are to be shaped by Jesus, not our culture. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, then emulate humility. What does the Spirit desire to create in us? According to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.22, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is there pride in the list? And then Paul goes on to say that, that pride, like anything but pride, in our lives. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Doesn't that sound like what pride does? It becomes filled with conceit and then provokes others and envies them. Now, I know some of you are saying, okay, Brit, I get it. There's no argument here. The Bible teaches humility, not pride. But there's something here that maybe you haven't thought about before. And it's this, that pride is natural for us, but humility is a choice. That's the title of this message, to choose humility. See, breaking the me first instinct, instinct takes transformation. It's a transformation that only Jesus can do, and it is one of the most transformative works of Christ in our life to break pride. I mean, think about it. No one had to teach us how to be proud, right? That comes, we come by that naturally, but where humility, on the other hand, is a conscious choice. It's not a natural instinct. You've heard of 
a sympathetic response. That is the fight or flight response that our bodies have that when we're fearful or scared, something kicks in and we, and we get this surge of adrenaline that causes us either to stand and fight or to run away. Either way, it's that surge of energy that blasts us into action, which may or may not be the right thing in that moment. But there is a sympathetic response in the broken state of human beings, and it's based in pride. It is the most natural thing, not just for our bodies, but for our minds and our souls to respond from a place of pride. If you think about your week this week and the discussions that you had at work or at home or with your children or in your neighborhood, and maybe you got a little tweaked or maybe something happened, it's like there was something in you that's, that you could feel the reaction coming not just in your mind, but in your body, in, in your chest, in your soul, in your guts. You feel this happening. That natural response is pride. And maybe some of you in that moment were able to recognize it and bear down or place your heart and your mind on the way of Jesus and you instead, you, you captured that thing, that animal in you sometimes. And you reshaped it, in it and you responded in humility. You know that that was not a natural thing. That is something that Jesus is changing in all of us who call him Lord and follow him. Maybe you came to an intersection this week and you know how you show up at the stop sign, especially like a four-way stop all at once. Some people just charge ahead, right? And others kind of like wait. Do you know that like the University of Nevada did a study on this and they found that the more pricier and fancier your car, the less likely you were to stop for a pedestrian. In fact, they assigned like actual percentages to this based on what they observed. They put people at a at an intersection in the street and they used men and women of, in different ages and of different races and cultures and they, but the defining factor of how people responded to the pedestrian in the street they found in their study was really tied to the fanciness or expense of the car. Isn't that weird? So if you drive a really nice car I'm afraid to be in the street near you. They found that like once you go beyond the average price of a car, that for every $1,000 that that car is worth over that average vehicle on the road, that your likelihood of stopping for a pedestrian goes down 3%. Humility often is like that four-way stop, isn't it? When we... We come there and we, we either, in that moment, we either need to be somewhere. Our life is more important than anybody else's or we're superior to them. All these things are processed in our mind. 
See, removing pride from our lives will be the second hardest thing we ever do. The second hardest thing. For those of you that became Christians later in life, you know that like the first sins to go are sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Those are the first to go because we, we see how, how much it makes sense to get rid of these things in our lives that are destroying us. But pride is often the last thing to go. I remember... Um, must have been in the, in the early Saturday Night Live uh, show. John Belushi, they did a few skits where he was the thing that wouldn't go home. Is any, anybody in the audience remember this? Raise your hand if you're... Anyone? Anyone? The thing that wouldn't go home. So, they, they, you know, you'd have someone over at your house, and, it, and Belushi was that person that just would never leave, and you're like, you, you know these people, right? Um, some of you are those people. In my house, we just start to turn the lights off if you stay too long. And then we just go to bed and leave you in the living room. No. But he was the thing that wouldn't go home. And you know, pride is the thing that won't go home. It just hangs on. And the truth is that we're all pride addicts. If we could go to Pride Anonymous every week, we would enter the meeting and we would say, Hi, I'm Brit. I'm a prideful man. We all struggle with it every day. Not just at an intersection, but in our marriages, in our relationships with our friends in our neighborhood, and how, who mows the strip that you share with that house next door, and how the neighbor doesn't really keep it up, and you've mowed it more times than them. Not that anybody would ever count something like that. But I've heard about people that would do that. In our dorms, in our apartment complexes, pride is the last thing to go. But it's only the second hardest thing you'll ever do. Living out the humility of Jesus will be the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's why, I mean, it's like you're never done, right? There used to be that joke, you know... Um, well, there still is that joke, because I'm about to tell it. Um, you know, I'm writing a book on humility, humility and how I attained it. You can never write that book because you never truly attain humility. And you think about when we become Christians, the first things we learn, we learn some Bible verses, some doctrine maybe. You might even learn a creed or a denominational statement, or what we believe. We, taught, we learn how to volunteer, and we learn how to join a group, or how to use push pay. But when is the teaching about humility, which is like the fundamental thing that Jesus says about himself and his followers? We, many of us can talk eloquently about humility, but living it, the way of living the way of Jesus will be the hardest thing that we ever do because we're choosing against our flesh. In Romans 13, 14, Paul says that we're to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus and don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And we often think of those as only fleshly sins, but really pride needs gratification just like anything else. It's constantly hungry. 
So how do I get humble if it goes so against my nature and what I want to be? On one hand, we should ask ourselves, why is it so hard for Christians to be humble when the way we enter the kingdom of God is, as Jesus said, to crawl through the narrow gate on our hands and knees admitting that we're sinners. And then after that, it's so difficult for us to acknowledge that we might be part of the problem. It's a weird paradox or irony. But how do we employ humility in all the things that we're dealing with today? in the cultural discussion, in our doctrinal discussion, in relational conflict. And that's like I'm just going to click through three things that have helped me become the humble person that I am. I'm just kidding, right? I'm going to talk about a saint, a scripture, and a sketch. And all of these have shaped many people's way of looking at being humble. First of all, a saint you may have heard this statement. It's attributed to Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let's just look at that for a second. And think about it through the lens of humility. This is what's so interesting to me is that this is something that is needed this early in the birth of the church. 300 years after the time of Christ. And certainly it wasn't the first time, but this is such a great statement for us to process these things that we feel intensely about. Augustine left us some great stuff, and this is one of his best. When we say in essentials unity, but non-essentials liberty, it means that there are both. There are essentials in doctrine, and there are non-essentials. What is a non-essential? The way I would put it is just that we must acknowledge that gray is a color. Right? If you have a box of crayons at home, even if it's the cheapest, most basic one, if it's the elementary school one or preschool with the big crayons, you have to rest on your shoulder. There's a gray crayon in there. There's a white crayon and there's a black crayon but there's also a gray crayon because gray is a color. Gray is a mixture, right? I mean, I'm not an artist by any means, but it's either you've watered down black with white or you've strengthened white with black. But either way, there's a whole middle section of gray. Gray, you know, like not that I'm well-informed on you know, style by any means. But gray was a very popular color for a while. Some of you, you've painted your rooms gray and your house gray. And, and did you realize that there were that many grays? I didn't until we started painting, you know. But gray is a color. Humility enables us to say that some things are gray. Some things are non-essential. And they, these things are the things that Christians have argued about for years and centuries and millennium. Things like the end times or baptism 
or how to do communion or the gifts of the Spirit or Calvinism versus Arminianism or versions of the Bible, even women's role in the church. Good Christians have been struggling with this. People that love the Bible. Why, why have we struggled with all these things? Because it's gray. Then there's lifestyle cho choices like, can you drink alcohol and how much? What you do for entertainment? The size or total square inch capacity of your bathing suit? Or the length of your skirts? These are all things that we... We debate about and have different opinions of. And today, we have cultural issues that are falling into the same category. And we have, we, these cultural things have achieved a level of doctrinal debate, whether it's you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether, you're a, whether you believe in all the isms, you know, socialism, Marxism, capitalism, gun, masks, freedom, we can... We can all say that, like, we don't really know everything. Some of these things are gray. They are non-essentials. And in that area, we have to give one another freedom. What is essential? Jesus is essential, right? The gospel is essential. There's no wiggle room on some things in Scripture. There's no wiggle room on some biblical standards. But on many things, there are things that we debate and discuss. Some things are essential, some are non-essential. But whatever we do, Augustine's encouragement in all things charity and all things love, it's really good advice. And, and I think that people or churches or families that follow this pattern of essentials and non-essentials and charity and all. There's a sweet spirit in that family or in that church or in that office. There's a spirit that more reflects the spirit of Jesus than the world when we can follow these wise words from a saint. And without it, that sweetness is not present. Then there's a scripture. There's this, a saint and then there's a scripture. And I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 1. This is his, his first letter that we have in the Bible to the church at Corinth. And I'm reading from the Amplified Version. If you read from that, it's a wonderful version. Uh, now let's talk about, and in, and in the scripture it says, food that has been sacrificed to idols. In, in those times, there was debate about whether a food had been sacrificed or, you know, uh, offered in worship to an idol, whether you should eat it or not. And Christians, like, debated this and felt offended by one another, by different sides. Some people said, um, you know, it doesn't matter. There's not another God, so, like, what's the big deal? And others, like, how could you eat food that has been offered up to an idol? But here, I think we can fill in the blank in our modern culture, right? Just Now let's talk about fill in the blank. You that think everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge. While knowledge may make us feel important, it is love that really builds up the church 
anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Don't you love that? Even though it kind of tweaks you, it tweaks me. Even though we don't really know that much. If we think that we know everything, how could we ever learn something that we didn't already know? Of course we don't know. Have you, how many of you in the audience here have seen social, The Social Dilemma? Anybody watch that? You should watch it on Netflix if you're online at, uh, at home or wherever you're watching us. I really recommend that because there are algorithms, as you may know, in all of our social media that they figure out what we like, what our, what our brain is thirsty for, and it feeds us that. And so it puts us in a rut, not a groove, but a rut where we're only getting the information that we're kind of telling the system that we want. And that's a, the reason why it is that way, the reason why that works is because we like it. Because we think what we know, we already know it all. And so we just want to feed what we know. That's true of all of us. One of the best things that we could do is step outside of that and listen to or talk to somebody that doesn't agree with us, that has a different perspective on that. You know, the last time that you or I realized that we didn't know what we thought we know, that's when we exercised humility and love for someone else. I heard of uh, some friends this week that had a conversation and they decided not to be friends anymore because some friends did not want to hear another version. They said, no, no, we're not really interested in hearing your opinion on this matter because we know what we know. I love what Paul writes to the Philippians too. In Philippians 2, 1 through 8, and this is from the message, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if you get anything at all out of being a follower of Jesus, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was, incredibly, it was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. This is Scripture. And the Scripture tells us that we should choose humility. See, choosing humility is not the way of compromise. It is the way of Jesus. But it is not the easy way. Humility is not wimpiness because Jesus humbled himself. 
If you want to be a tough guy, then be humble. If you want to live by, your convict, by biblical convictions, then live humbly. Because that's what God calls us to do. That's what God wants from us. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to, be, to walk in his way, whether you're a man or a woman, to be a humble servant. So when we're in that moment where it's like it just feels like it's so hard to understand another person's position or on, on whatever it might be, how about this? How about we say, help me understand. Help me understand why you can think such a ridiculous thing. No, I don't. You guys okay? All right. Help me understand because our natural response is to, to already build in. As they talk, to build in our rebuke or our comeback what they're saying rather than trying to understand what they're saying. It doesn't mean that we give up. We're not compromising. That's not it. It's just simply to respond in humility. And we might learn something. And then lastly, I just want to put a sketch up here and then I'm done. And this isn't original with me, you know, like one of our early pastors here for 14 years was Greg Sitters. I learned so much from him as I uh, worked alongside him, and um, this was his. I don't know that he came up with it or not, but like he says that our beliefs are like a target. And I've often gone back to this drawing in my mind, you know. In the middle are the things that we would die for, right? There are some truths that we'd like to think, this is so important that I could not, I couldn't recant it. I would not want to, but it's like this is so important. Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for my sins, that, that He is my Lord. And I can't change that no matter what you want to say to me. I'll die for that truth. But then beyond that is like a bigger circle. It's things that I wouldn't necessarily die for, but maybe I would break fellowship with you over. It's like it's just so incompatible with the, with the teachings of Jesus that even though it's not essential to the gospel, it's like, I won't die for it, but man, I just, I don't see how that we can be companions on the road together on this issue. And then there's a bigger circle around that where it's like, I wouldn't die for it, I wouldn't separate on it, but I would just argue with you until the cows come home. Like, we would continue to debate this thing. We'd be in agreeing not to dis. Uh, agreeing to disagree on this thing. And we would talk about it often, you know, and come around. And then there's the biggest circle of all is just let it go, right? It's, like, it's not worth, you're not going to die for it. You wouldn't separate over it. You wouldn't debate it even. It's just like, eh, just let them say it. You know, it's like, oh, whatever. It's not even worth it. The key to this diagram isn't that you already know that we have these. The key to the diagram here is to constantly resist making the bullseye bigger. Because human nature just wants to put everything in the inner circles. And we keep expanding the bullseye. But the bullseye is small, right? We have to keep it intentionally small. So work at keeping the things that are most essential and most important small. That has served me well over the years. You see, 
then I'm going to ask the band to come up. As they're coming up, if we cannot rid ourselves of pride, then we will never be able to listen. We will label those people that we want to delegitimize as holding a different opinion than ours. And we will wear a jersey that says, I'm just for my team, and I'm in it to win it, not to learn or to be a part of the conversation. In the end, we will never be able to talk. And if we can't talk, then we will never learn. And if we can't learn, we will never grow up. And if we can't grow up, we will always be babies and immature. If we can't rid ourselves of pride, we will breed only quarrels. And worse than that is that we will never be able to influence the world that Jesus has put us in the middle of. We will never take or have the opportunity to interact with somebody as the Apostle Paul did or Jesus did who are so far from God. But if we don't eradicate pride, we can't even take the first step. I don't know about you, but I want to choose humility. It will be a daily battle. But that battle keeps me in the game. It keeps me in relationships. It keeps me loving and connected to the people that are important to me. More than the issues, more than the doctrines often, more than anything else, the people that I love and I, and I want to do life with and I want desperately to affect the world that I'm in. That only happens if we choose humility.